We're starting a new series today called Rescued from Religion. And, uh, and uh, we're going to get right into the clickers and ask you a quick question on this. Um, and I was actually told I shouldn't ask this question in church, but I'm going to do it anyway. Just because sometimes when I'm told I shouldn't do something, I want to do it anyway. Okay, you got them ready? So do you believe the church will literally, I mean really, truly, transform our culture, change it for the better? Yes or no? One or two? Eighty-one percent. Oh, we stopped it too soon. Okay, we're going to give you we're going to give you another opportunity to all vote because I know we have more than fifteen people here. All right, try it again. One or two. Everybody was ready. It went really fast on that one. Awesome. Okay, awesome. Let me ask you a question then, because the obvious, the obvious next step question is, if you answered yes, then why is it not happening? Why has the church for 50 years been not keeping up with population growth or declining in America? If we believe that God can transform our culture, then, then why isn't it happening? I mean, after all, the Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he is in the world. Shouldn't, shouldn't that happen? If you answered no, then the next obvious questions I think you're probably already running around in your mind are, are, why do you continue to attend church? I mean, what do you possibly get out of going to church if it doesn't change things? Wouldn't it be better to just spend your time getting a membership to the country club or putting yourself and your family through therapy? I mean, does it, wouldn't that make more sense to do that? Why, do, why would we continue putting the quarter in the vending machine of church when it doesn't give us anything back? And, and then it, it elicits another question. If, if we ask those questions, then we have to say, what's the problem? Because many of us believe it should and will and can change our culture. What's the problem? And I think the first question that comes out of that sometimes for people is, well, maybe God's, maybe God's impotent in some way, may, or, or, or maybe, maybe he's just not as powerful as we think he is, or, or maybe, uh, maybe God is somehow selfish and plays favorites, and, and, it, and it really just depends on our performance as to whether he's going to do that or not, or, or maybe he just gave a big old fat pipe to the, to the early church to hear his voice and hear the power, and he just gives us a little stinking 2400 baud modem. Anybody remember what those were like? Last time I was on a 2400 baud modem, I was in the most, well, sorry, I hope I'm not going to offend anybody. I was in the most, what I think, God-forsaken place on the planet, which is Yuma, Arizona. And I was in a little hotel, and it took me two hours to load my webmail on a 2400 baud modem. That's how bad it is for all you people who've never heard of a 2400 baud modem. Or, or maybe the problem isn't with God. Maybe the problem's with us. And, and we just start asking the questions, how are we deficient? Where, where do we lack the zeal? Is it just, do we just lack the commitment or, or do we lack the effort or the faith to see God do this through us? What's the problem? Maybe the problem is our pride or our selfishness or our, or our greediness or, or, or maybe it's just that the cares of the world have choked off the, the power of God and the, and the fruitfulness of God from our life or, and we just start asking these questions. Where have we failed? What do we need to change? How do we change? Can we even change? Is it even possible? 
Where's the problem? And here's the deal. If I've, I've asked these questions, and, and if you've asked those same questions to yourself, then more than likely in your mind, your stress level has just gone up just a hair. Because you're going, man, I just got to do better. What, where, where am I failing? How can I make this be better? And it's so often when we deal with these questions, we, we focus on ourselves. And we come to this place where we say, okay, I'm just going to be a little more intense. I'm going to be a little more committed. I'm, going to, I'm just going to try harder. And, and the reality is for most people in Christian church in America who have tried that for years, it doesn't produce better results. It just ends up in despair, hopelessness. Even if we stick around, we stick around because we believe we should be, because we're afraid of not going to heaven, because we're, I don't know what we're afraid of, but, but we don't really hope that things are really going to be different, that we really are going to radically change our community. Today we begin the series Rescued from Religion, and, and it's a really, really important topic. It's a topic that you can find from cover to cover in the Bible. It's a topic that, that, quite frankly, if you go back and read the Gospels, the, the, the four books in the Bible, the four letters in the Bible that are about Jesus' ministry on earth, you will see this theme as one of the most prominent themes of Jesus' teaching and his actions. In fact, he's really passionate about this. Get this, Matthew 23. This is, he's talking to people about this topic. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law, all you religious leaders. He says, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And then verse 15 goes on, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make a single convert. And then when you make them, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. This is nice, Jesus. This is the kind, polite, passive, nice Jesus that we like on our paintings that we, that we think about a lot of times. In verse 16, you blind guides, he says. In verse 23, you, you, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you blind guides. That seems to be a theme here, isn't it? You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but in, inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. Exclamation point there. Jesus is pretty passionate about this. First clean the inside of the cup and then the outside also will be clean. 27, he goes on. Woe to you teachers. He calls them whitewashed tombs. That's what you really want to be called, isn't it? Right? You want to be called a whitewashed tomb. This is Jesus being his most polite. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 29, 33, he hasn't said enough, so he says this. You snakes! You brood of vipers! How will you escape being condemned to hell? And then Jesus again shows the amazing side of him. At the end of the chapter, he again refers to that verse that we referenced in one of our previous messages recently. He, he again looks at these same people he's just rebuked. And he says, oh, how I wish I could have gathered you under my wing like a, a mother hen gathers the chicks and protects them. He is so passionately in love, even with these Pharisees, even when he talks to them this way. You think Jesus is serious about this whole rescuing people from religion? It's easy for us to distance ourselves from these these Pharisees, these religious leaders, because because they're they're then and, and they've done all these things that we can read about in the stories of Jesus and say, oh, that's really crazy, that's really stupid. 
But the reality is these guys were just people like us. They were just trying to figure out what, how to serve God best. They were trying to figure out what the best way was to lead their nation under a difficult time, under a Roman occupation, to, to maintain a purity of their faith, to understand sound doctrine, to have good prayer lives and good habits and, and not to sin. They were just people like us. So it's easy, it's so easy for us to fall into this whole religion thing, to to allow it to creep into our pursuit of faith and rob us of what God really wants to bring to us. It, it It happens for all of us. And the reality is when you look at the story of the Bible, you see Jesus and his followers radically transforming people's lives, communities' lives. And you don't see that from the Pharisees and the religious people. This is important. Today's message is going to be uh, a little bit more of an inventory kind of. A, we're going to kind of do a real broad scope look at things, and I'm going to encourage you, if you're not a note taker, to go ahead and pull out and flip over your program and draw a line down the middle of the back of your program where the note option is. If you want, if you want a pen, there's uh, pens underneath the edges of the seat there. If you don't have one with you, because we're going to just look at a bunch of things very briefly, hopefully briefly. Just ask the first service people. And before we do that, we're going to start by asking you a few more questions and having you respond to them. And I, I forgot to say ahead of time that we don't know which clicker you're responding, so you're completely anonymous. And if you, if you hold your clicker like this, then even the person next to you can't see what you're answering, okay? So I want you to just give me your impression of how much these statements are or are not like you, okay? And it's going to be one to four, and I know people hate one to four. Everybody wants a one to five because they like a three, because everybody can be non-committal that way, right? Okay, so I feel a lot of pressure to live up to others' expectations, especially those of Christian friends and leaders. Does that, is that mostly like you, not at all like you? Where would you fit in there? Go ahead and click. Cool. Okay, we're going to go on to the next question. We're going we're gonna to get these, and then we'll probably look at them a little more as we go on in the series. I try hard to obey God, and it irritates me that others think they can get away with avoiding the same level of dedication. This is not at all like me or mostly like me. How does that one fit with you? All right. Next question. I worry that people might take advantage of grace if it's preached too much. People might think they can do anything they want. Does that describe you a lot or not much? All right, we got more people on that one than the previous ones. That must be easy. Next question. My feeling of spiritual well-being is linked to reading the Bible. In other words, if, in order for me to feel really good about faith and, my God, and God, my, my spiritual well-being is linked to reading the Bible, prayer, church attendance, or acting good enough rather than simply a personal relationship with God. 
Fantastic. Next question. There are many shameful things about me or my past that I would never feel comfortable sharing with my Christ-following friends. How does that describe you? Where do you fit in that? Okay. Next question. I know God loves me. That's the truth I've always been taught. But I fail so much, I don't really believe he will be personal with me. So I just try to serve him. Just try to do my best. All right. If uh, the ushers are, are they here? We got them. Yeah, if you, if you could just pass your clickers in. Uh, we always uh, need to remind people these are loaned to us for free and they're 100 bucks a piece, so we just don't want to lose any. So appreciate it. You know what? We're going to look more at some of these questions in the future. And, you know, the, I mean, you could probably tell that the, uh, that the most like you probably, if you, if you click most likely like you on those, you know, maybe, maybe possibly that's an area you need to look at. You might be believing a religious lie. Maybe not. We're going to talk more about some of these things today and over the coming weeks, and, and you'll maybe get a better picture of that. You know, my greatest, one of my greatest fears in life is the fact that I will become a Pharisee. Really. Because I've seen it so much in my life where, where I can transpose my box of rules of what has worked for me and what I think God expects of me onto myself and others in a way that diminishes the, the love and the power of God. God is so amazing in his love, and yet, and yet we can even look at Paul and at one of the first churches that was planted, and, and we see him writing to them shortly after they became Christians, and, and, and the faith was exploding. They were changing their community and their region. It was just exploding everywhere, and he writes this to him. He says, so then, in Colossians, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And he says this, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. It is so easy to pursue faith with the wrong focus. It is so easy to experience Jesus and then transpose what we think we're searching for in faith upon that relationship and it to become hollow and deceptive. And that's the reason Paul's writing to these people shortly after they've just launched this massive growth of God's kingdom in their life and, and their communities to warn them. You see, we as humans, we try to categorize and formalize our lives in every area. You know, we do it in church. We do it in our own lives. You know, we, we sin in a certain area, so we discover what it takes to put boundaries up in our lives and be free of that sin, and then we force that upon everybody else. There was this wonderful, wonderful church that uh, I'm aware of in, in Eugene, Oregon. For those of you who don't remember, we, we lived there 11 years. 
And back in the uh, back in the Jesus People movement time, in the in the 60s time period, this church just exploded. And if you know anything about Eugene, it's still got more VW Vanigans per capita and beads and windows than any other place I've ever lived and, and driven through. I mean, it's just it's just leftover hippieville. So, you know, this church is exploding and they're having people who are high on LSD and, 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 and heroin and, and marijuana coming into their church. They're walking in in torn jeans and shirtless and bikinis and they're coming in and they're listening to this message about Jesus and they're learning to have a relationship with him and they're getting freed and they're just, it's amazing stuff happening. I mean, it's just amazing stuff happening. This church is reaching people that no other church in town has been able to reach. And people are growing and getting free. And then all of a sudden, you know, three, four, five, six, seven years into it, then everybody starts having kids and they go, well, you know, I used to be into this stuff and it's really, it was really cool that they accepted us, but I don't want my kids, I don't want to be around these people who are still smoking and high coming into church. I don't want the disruption of them sitting with their dirty, smelly, filthy bodies on our, on our nice chairs that we just bought on our, and it just becomes this thing where all of a sudden we start saying, okay, here's the rules. Here's how I got free from sin. So you need to get free from sin this way. So you got, you have to live in order to know Christ. You have to live this way and do this. And we create these rules around us to prevent sin. We create these rules around which we think good godly people live. You know, so somebody one day had uh, got, got too drunk and so we, we create this rule that it's evil because they did evil. So we create this rule that the Bible never says that drinking is not possible. It's, it's sinful and it's not in the Bible. And, and the Bible actually teaches moderation, not abs- abstinence. But we create rules because of, because of sin. And all of a sudden, we, we create all these things that really aren't even in the Bible. And, and we could say, oh, you know, this is, this is so easy. This is, we can understand that. We would never do that. If we saw God moving like that, like we saw in this church, we would never do that today. But we do it all the time. The last church I was on staff in in, the, in Tulsa, we grew from 250 to 950 in 18 months. So we did what any person would do. You'll do this in your business. You'll do this if, if you find something that solves a problem in your, in your family as well. We started asking questions, well, what did we do that caused the growth? And we discover X ended up meaning Y. When we do X, God does Y. And all of a sudden, it moves from this relationship, this dynamic love affair with an amazing, complex, awesome God to in order to have God do Y, we're going to do X. And we're going to always do X. And everybody has to do X to get to Y. And, and we do it all the time. So in our setting, we, we looked at it and we said, okay, well, we, we talked this way and we did it this way and we prayed and we fasted these ways and then, and then it works. So then we're going to do that more and tell everybody to do it more because doing it more will equal more Y. Doing more X will equal more Y. And that's the way it does. And Colossians 2 and few verses later in verse 23, Paul says to these same people, he says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatments of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And I would say that's the picture of most of our churches in America and many of our lives. 
If we've said, no, we don't have hope that the church is going to change things, it's because we see what the church doing not restraining sensual indulgence, not being effective in those areas. And if we said yes, and we really thought about it and looked at the churches around, we would say, yeah, that's probably true. We tend to box God instead of allowing him to be the complex, interesting, wonderful lover of our souls who can say to us in places like Psalm 23, I can take you through the valley of the shadow of death. I can have you in the middle of a battlefield and I'm going to set a table for you and I'm going to serve you an eight-course meal right in the middle of this battlefield. I'm so complex. I can do that in a place that you would never expect it to happen. And I can surprise you with my love at any moment. You see... All religions are the same in this respect. In all religions, you get to God through your, through your performance, through what you do. And Jesus didn't come to set up a new religion. He came to establish relationship. And in that perspective, the Christian religion that is so prevalent in so much of our own struggle to find true faith. And in the church in America today, and the reason I said last week uh, that I've been in hundreds of, worked with hundreds of pastors and been in well over a hundred churches and most of the people's God that I see is way too small is because it's really more about Christian religion. It's really more about the rules to try to make us better. And Christian religion from that standpoint is just as evil as any other religion. Because a relationship, relationship is always a violation of religion. Because it's not nice and neat. Guys, does X always mean Y with your wife? Women, you think us men are a little more predictable, right? But does X always equal Y even then? It doesn't, does it? Because relationship is so much more beautiful and complex and unpredictable and uncontrollable. So let's look at some of the distinctions between religion. And we're just going to run through these. Religion is about power and certainty, about control. But relationship is about mystery and the loss of control. It's a dynamic, it's a fluid thing. Another distinction I think comes out of this beautiful quote in, uh, in a book called Soul Repair. They have a, a chapter called Anorexic Spirituality. And, and at the beginning of every chapter, like a lot of publishers do, the, the, the author does a quote from another author that relates to that chapter. And in this one, they quote a guy named David, David Benner, who's a Christian psychologist. And he said this. He says, it is, it is surrender to, the, to love that I really resist. He said, I'm willing to accept measured doses of love as long as it doesn't upset the basic framework of my world. And that framework is built on the assumption that people get what they deserve. And that's what I really want. I want to earn what I get. And I would go a step further and say, I believe I get what I earn, good or bad. You see, religion is about performance and earning love. Relationship is about accepting the love and living in it and enjoying it in all of its beauty. Another one comes out of Matthew. 
Matthew, as we can tell already, captures this whole essence of Jesus' message and the woes that I read to you earlier. But Matthew is a, is, a, is, a, is a gospel. It's a story about Jesus' ministry on earth written by Matthew, one of his disciples, who was with him firsthand. And, and he's, he's actually writing to the Jewish audience. And yet, in writing to the Jewish audience, Matthew is one of the strongest on this message of allowing Jesus' message of attacking religion to come through. He doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches even though Jesus is attacking the Jewish religion. Because the Jewish religion was steeped in dues. It was, you have to sacrifice in this way. You have to do this. And if you walk on this grave, then you've got to be ceremonially unclean for a week and you've got to do all these things to purify yourself. And there were just dues and dues and dues and dues all over the place. And, and, and it's really interesting because can you imagine the difficulty it would be to translate living the life that we live, the security we have in our faith from all these dues that we think we can control, all our security based in sacrifice and action to a security based in faith. That's such a huge transition. You see, we're wired to make our security based based in what we do. Even even a lot of the great pop psychology out there says you build your security by you build your sense of self-esteem and your sense of security by doing things better and better and better and just believing in the things you do well. And so that's the way you build it, and we're just wired that way. But but Jesus says our security is based in faith. And yes, there's an obedience, but it's not an obedience to earn. It's an obedience that is responsive reacting to that love. As Christians, we don't slaughter animals and we don't have a lot of the same rules that the Jews had. But, but, and, yet, and yet we develop our own sense of security so often outside of Christ and in the things that we call church and what we do at church. We develop our security around the fact that we're in a small group and we've got an accountability partner and we, we, do, the, we, we do certain amounts of certain types of study and certain actions for discipleship and we get our security in that and we so easily fall prey to religion again instead of always getting our sense of security in Jesus. And the reality is a lot of those things that we do are good. They're the right things. In fact, if we're truly in a love relationship with Jesus, we will still do those things. It'll just be motivated differently. It'll come from a different place, a different heart. And if you're here today and you've never even declared your faith in Jesus, you do the same thing. You know, some of the reasons I hear most common for people who don't have a faith in Jesus coming to church is because they want moral training for their kids. And you know what? We're going to do moral training for the kids because the Bible does teach us about how to live free through moral training. But, but if you come to church because you want moral training for your kids and that's what your kids get, then your kids are just going to get a bunch of rules and they're going to end up being religious and without a freeing, empowering relationship with the God who loves them so much. Or maybe you came because you have a crisis in your life or you've got self-esteem issues and, and you just can't resolve them. And so you come here and to try to resolve those things, you listen to the good principles that are taught in, in, in like the class that we had recently, the tell, telling the truth, uh, uh, sorry, it's... Um, Transforming the mind that just 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 finished. Great class. All of us should take it. Um, I say that too much, but really the only reason I say that too much right now is because we're still building the core classes, and we we 
we're just at the point where we don't have a ton of classes, so we're building the core classes, the ones that we think are most important first. Sorry, got distracted there. Um, so, but we take those classes, we apply those principles, and they, they then all of a sudden turn into our box again. As long as we do these things, we will not have this crisis, and we'll feel good, and, and we, we don't remember the personal side of the relationship with Jesus. Imagine counseling a married couple who just came into your living room someday, and they're good friends of yours, and, 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 and you realize that the, the, the husband does everything right. He, he, he he's just does everything that all the books say you should do as a good husband. He writes the letters. He, he, he manages his time well. He, he does all this, but then, then you find out that, that he's doing it just because there's a sense of security in his life that he gets because he thinks in order for him to be good enough, he has to have a good marriage. In order for him to be gain a political position at his job or whatever, he's just doing this because of that, and he's not really motivated out of love. It's just out of a sense of pure, absolute duty. How many of you women would, would, would trade all those things that he did so perfectly by the book for a husband who authentically loved you, who did things, even if he forgot to write letters all the time, even if he, even if he left his dirty socks forever on the floor in the middle of the bathroom and made you walk through them after he'd worked all day and gone for a run and they're wet and sweaty and you walk through them? How many of you would trade that for somebody who authentically loved you and knew you? You see, our crisis as a Christian churchgoer is that actions don't save us. The things we do don't save us. It's faith in someone that we can't control. We can't make Jesus save us. We can't make him heal us. We can't make him resolve our crisis when we want him to resolve our crisis on the time frame we want him to resolve our crisis in. We can only trust that he really is loving. And this is a frightening reality because all of us love a sense of control and it makes us feel like we're out of control. And it's the whole crazy dynamic of Christian devotion. You know, we, we read the Bible, we pray, we do all these things, we give. And yet, that, that's not the focus. It doesn't save us. Those are actions we'll do towards the one we love if we love him, but they don't save us. You know, sometimes our, our answer to when we start realizing that that we're doing something that, uh, that is done more out of a need to get acceptance from God, when we start to expose some of these religious things in our lives, sometimes our reaction is to just not do them. Some of you may have walked away from church years ago because of religious stuff, rules. Even if they were the right rules, wrongly interpreted, some oftentimes it was the wrong rules that added to the Bible, but maybe you walked away. And just stop doing those things. I remember a time, and I've told you about this time period in my life, but I haven't told you this part of the story before. I was graduating from college, and the previous year I'd been involved in student ministry, and there was just this nasty political fight that went on that you just hate and hate and among, that goes on sometimes among people, and these guys all called them Christians. It was a very disillusioning time. And then on top of that, my, my closest friend died in a rock climbing accident. As he was on a, his graduation gift was to go to Europe, and he, he died in the Alps, climbing the Alps. 
And I went into this time where, where I just started to read some stuff and started to realize, I, I kind of got depressed and started to realize how much of my life was driven around spiritual disciplines that, that in order for me to feel good about a day, I had to have prayed a certain amount. I had to have read the Bible because if I didn't do that, then I didn't believe God could give me a good day. And I didn't believe He was there. And I, I started to realize how wrong that was and how lacking in relationship that was. And, and I went for, through four years of, of, of just giving up on spiritual disciplines. You see, so often, so often the, the, the things that are actually good that we do motivated out of religion, we give up on. And then all it, made, all it meant for me was four years of more depression than I needed to experience. Because those same things I was doing, all I needed to do was do them from a different heart, do them from a different place, a different motive. There's a story in John 8 where Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. This is the next, the next point. Where Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. And, and, and they've, got, they've made it very clear that they have their identity formed in their religion in Abraham. And, and Jesus basically, in a long story short, in chapter 8, verses 42, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, tells them that basically their identity is a lie. And he tells us in that whole thing two, two truths. He says, and it's a lie because it's not found in him personally. And, and one of the truths is that, is that our pursuit of truth in, in the church so often becomes academic. We want to define knowledge of the Bible. We want to get academic answers to all the solutions. We want to have a great systematic theology and, and that that's what means great faith. And those things are good, but Jesus says, no. Truth is found in relationship, not in pure academics. Truth is found in you knowing me and how I live these truths. And he further confronts and says that their identity is in Abraham. And, 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 and so often for us, we create our own identity in, in, and we call ourselves Christians because we were baptized by a priest as a child or, or, or our parents taught us the Christian faith or had us go through catechism and we were confirmed or, or, or we grow up in a Christian nation or, or we get our identity because we go to Quest and, and we hear stuff there and because we go to Quest we're a Christian or, or we get our identity in a well-known preacher online and, and our identity is not an expert's. Many of us were taught that. Many of us were taught in, in mainline denominational settings, that especially or, or Catholic settings, that, that God was mediated to us through the priest, that he was the only one who could really explain the Bible. He was the, really the only one who could know who God was. And we put our identity in experts. And Jesus here bluntly says that is satanic. That is of the devil. That is wrong. Identity is in personally knowing him. Personally knowing him. The next point I want to go to much more quickly, and I'm going to abbreviate. Relationship focuses on the created. Our religion focuses on the created. It focuses on us. It always comes back to us and what we can do and, and, and our goodness before God and, and how we act. But relationship focuses on a personal, loving creator. Religion says that if you believe, if I, if I behave, God will love me. But the Bible says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so often that belief that God will love us if we behave is, is akin to something we would never believe in. It's the same as if, as if you're a dad or a mom and you would go to your kid and you'd say, 
son or daughter, if you do X, Y, and Z, I will be your daddy and I will love you. If you don't, you're out the door. And we would never do that with our kids. But we so often look at God that way. And we think he'll never, he'll never love us. He'll never be personal with us unless we behave. Religion says that the world is filled with two kinds of people, good and bad people. And it creates divisions because the good people aren't supposed to hang out with the bad people. And the bad people aren't supposed to be part of the good people until they're, until they're good and measure up. But relationship teaches us, that, teaches us that there's two kinds of people. Repentant ones and unrepentant ones. And we're all really the same. We're all just receiving grace. We're all on a journey. We're all learning to receive more of this God who loves us and and be free from our junk and, and live the way he wants us to live. Jesus goes to the most screwed up sinners and says to the sinners, you're sinners. And we see throughout the gospels that they would that they would hear that and they would say, come eat with us. Welcome. And Jesus would go to the religious, religious people and say the same thing and they'd argue with him because there's good and bad people. And that always leads to argument because I have to prove that you're good or prove that you're bad. And that's not what relationship is. Religious people care all about your pedigree, what you've done. Did you go to Christian school? Did you learn this? Did you do that? Have you cleaned this area of your life up? Are you living good enough here? Do you have good enough spiritual disciplines? Do you, do you read the Bible frequently enough? Do you treat your wife like, you're, like, the, like the Bible says you're supposed to treat them? And it tends to be very unforgiving. Because if we violate those things, those measures of pedigree, then we're, we're nothing. And we've all seen it. We've all heard about it. You know, the, the easiest example is, is pastors who have fallen and sinned and, and you don't see them ever again. They're gone the next Sunday. Because it's all about pedigree. It's all about religion. It's not about relationship. But relationship cares about your new birth. It cares about your new quest. It cares about where you're at on your journey today and how, are we, how can we encourage you and bless you and walk with you to take your next step. Even with all the bumps and stride. Religion tells you it's all about what you do. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. We covered that a little bit before. Relationship is about Jesus. Religion says you have to find God. He's hard to find, so you've got to work really hard to find Him. But Christian relationship says that Jesus is coming to find you. The Bible says that we love because He first loved us because he pursued us when we weren't loving him because he pursued us when we didn't even want him to pursue us because he pursued us in all of our sin because he loves us first we get to love him it's kind of like it's kind of like a dad playing hide and seek with their with their 1 year old or 1 and a half year old just after they start to walk you know, you can, you can hide in the most obvious place and they'll miss you. So half your time hiding from them is saying, whistling. You know, I, I, I always used to go, Boop! until my kids found me. Just, you know, I mean, we all do that, right? I mean, God, God, I, I help find them first and then I help them find me. And that's, that's, that's who God is to us. Religion is perceived as the path of least resistance. 
Because we believe that if we're religious enough, if we have good enough faith, that life will automatically be easier for us. That because we have faith that God will give us this protection, that nothing bad will ever happen to us. But relationship is based upon a perseverance and a following of a God in all the mystery of the stuff we don't understand, in all the unknown, the unforeseeable, the good, the bad, the healing, the pain, in all of it. You see, in the end, religion doesn't work. Now, you may be in a church for 40 or 50 years. I've been in plenty of churches with people who had been in church for 50 years, and you know what? They lived church in despair. Because it hadn't worked for years. They may still be there. But they don't believe God's going to transform the community. They believe he should. But they feel really guilty. And so he'll never do it. Because he never does it through them. Religion leads to pride and and despair. Religion ends up creating arrogant jerks. I've been one of those before. I've been an arrogant jerk. That's part of what led me into that whole depression. After college, I was an arrogant jerk who believed that everybody needed to live up to what I thought the box should be for behavior in Christianity. And if you didn't toe the line, then I believed exactly what we asked. I got angry because they didn't toe the line and they were just measly little, they just weren't strong enough. And that's what religion does to us. It either either makes us arrogant, self-righteous jerks or it makes us give up and we leave church or we leave faith. Even if we're here, we check out and don't believe that God can truly change things. Religion never leads to joy. And it never leads to humility. The best it leads to is dampened emotions and pride. If you obey the rules, you're self-righteous. If you're honest, you realize you don't even live by your rules. So you give up and you feel hopeless. Relationship ends in joy and humility because we can be confident that God is for us. God loves us. And because God loves us and God pursues us, He is the one changing us. It's not up to us to be changed. We just have to learn to accept His love and respond to His love. And that He's faithful even when we're faithless. doesn't matter if we sin. He's still faithful to us. And He still loves us. See, the challenge for us through today and through this series as we talk more in depth the next few weeks about some of these things is some of us do need to repent of sin because sin is keeping us from the freedom of God loving us, of accepting God's love the way He wants us to know it. And some of us need to repent of religion. You know, when I say that, some of you immediately hear the word repent, and your reaction is this. Ah, i got to say sorry again. I feel guilty. i got to work harder. Now, repenting is not just, is not your shame reaction. Repenting is turning into the loving arms of Jesus and accepting Him. It's turning towards Him and just accepting His embrace. That's what repentance is. Let's pray. Lord, 
we've touched on a lot of topics today. And Lord, I pray that the ones that have touched different people's hearts, I pray, Lord, that you'd continue to speak to them this week. Lord, that we would be people who would be free of religion. That you would identify those areas that, that bind us up from and keep us from seeing how much you love us from experiencing the peace and the joy that you want to bring to our lives. Do your work in us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I'm going to ask you to this week. Take this list. I'm going to send it out. I will do a after the message this week. Sorry, I didn't get one done this last week. Take your list, and I want you to take some time with family, with friends, with work associates. I don't care. Talk about it. Talk about the areas where you get caught up in religion or, or maybe from your past. Talk about the areas of the rules that you either experienced or you grew up that just made faith pursuits so difficult and so dead. Or maybe you heard them from other people. And would you do me a favor too? Uh, throw my email up there. Would you email me some of those rules that you were, that you lived under or you struggle with now or you heard other people live under? Uh, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to look at a few of those. I'd love to be able to share some of those. I will not share any with your name unless you specifically give me permission to do that. So don't worry about that. And I may not even share it with your name then. Um, but I would love to have some of your ideas. So I'd love to, I'd love to get 100 emails this week. And some of them will probably be pretty funny. So, okay. If you're here and would like prayer, grab a friend or grab somebody down front. Have a great week. God bless.